I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr how do you like that the fault dear buddhist is not in our stars but in ourselves good luck we care about your world so my guest is connie sveig She's a retired therapist and co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow. Her award-winning book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, has won numerous awards in 2022 and extends her work on the shadow into exploring aging as a spiritual practice. Her new book, which is actually the third reissuing or reworking of this book that we'll be talking about, is Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, the Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. Connie has also been doing contemplative practices for more than 50 years, and having been a wife, stepmother, and grandmother, she's practicing the shift from role to soul. So Connie, welcome. Thank you. Look forward to our conversation. Me too. So this is the third edition of this book. What inspired you to put this out again at this time? You know, that's the first time I've been asked that. It's such a good question. Many years ago, I did my doctoral dissertation on the holy longing, which is a name for our spiritual yearning for transcendence or for the divine or for the higher self, whatever we call it. And I looked at the psychology of that yearning. But this was in the 1990s, and I was a different person back then. And later, I reissued the book because I had an experience of meeting a number of highly advanced spiritual practitioners. And I wanted to expand on the story based on their experiences. And now, today, we're in the Me Too movement era. And the whole topic of religious betrayal and spiritual abuse and the trauma that results from that is in the headlines again. There's so many spiritual teachers today acting out their shadows, despite all of the progress that we've made from the Me Too movement. And I've learned so much. So I wanted to expand on our understanding of this. 
using depth psychology, and I wanted to set it in our current era, and also in Chapter 5, tell a lot more stories, a lot more anecdotes about the teachers and the communities that have acted out their shadows and the consequences of that. Yeah, I, I spent some time with one of them that you mentioned many, many years ago, Muktananda. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and I remember a year or so after returning to San Diego, after a break from that, an old girlfriend who had been traveling across India for six months by herself, she was into Sai Baba, another one of the people that you talk about. And she came back and we came back to San Diego around the same time, back to this spiritual community that we were both a part of years before then. And she said, did you hear about Muktananda? I said, no, what? And she told me about it. And then she asked me, well, how do you feel about that? And I was like, I don't know. I guess everybody's capable of these things. And I have known people who have been involved with many of the people that you talk about in chapter five. And so it doesn't surprise me particularly. I mean, it's somewhat of a surprise and there's a great irony in it, of course. But uh, at a certain age, you start to realize that, wow, everybody's full of it. Everybody's got these things going on. And it's pretty enlightening to discover that even quote unquote enlightened people also have their shadow aspects, unresolved issues that they haven't worked out and that they're not aware of and that seep out and cause harm in the world. Yeah, so let's take a few steps back because many people may not be familiar with what we're talking about. You know, in the 1980s, there was this widespread scandal which continues today in the Catholic Church about priests sexually abusing children. And that woke up a lot of people to the dangers of religious abuse. And people were trying to demand systemic change in the church, which hasn't much happened. Primarily, the church has paid, the individual dioceses have paid individual survivors or groups of survivors in class action suits and tried to deal with it financially. But there haven't really been systemic changes in the church, at least that I'm aware of. They may have changed some reporting rules. So in the alternative spiritual communities, those that are guru-centered and those that are not, in the yoga world, in the Eastern-oriented communities, there have also been reports of child abuse and of adult abuse, of sexual assault, of financial coercion, and of emotional abuse. And they haven't caught the headlines in the same way as the Catholic Church has, but they've certainly been all over social media, and in some cases have had a national profile. So my intention in telling these stories is not to harden people, or discourage people from seeking, or to shock and disturb people. Rather, it's to educate people about how to cultivate shadow awareness, 
while they're doing their spiritual search. Because many of these teachers, like Sai Baba and Muktananda, but many, many more, have great gifts and transmissions and practices to offer us, while at the same time, they are flawed and they are imperfect and they continue to have shadow material that because it's unconscious, that they act out really harmfully on others and sometimes on their most precious students. So I wanted to examine why that was the case. I wanted to look from both points of view, from the seeker or the student or the disciple's point of view, why do I feel like I'm in love with that priest or that guru or that roshi? What is my attraction about? In psychological language, what am I projecting or unconsciously giving away to that teacher that I'm not seeing in myself? Or to that community, am I recreating my childhood family, my need to belong, my need to keep secrets, my need to feel special, to be seen? Am I recreating early childhood needs by joining this spiritual community? And so to add psychology to this dimension where it's usually missing, and in particular, the shadow, which has been my expertise, and that means our blind spots, the unconscious material that we're bringing to these experiences, to these attractions and these needs and these choices. And then from the other point of view of the teacher, what is happening inside the clergy? or the sheikh, or the shaman, or the roshi, who is attracting dozens or hundreds or thousands, in the case of Sai Baba, millions of followers. What happens when you're carrying a projection of that size, of that magnitude, and you begin to believe in your own press, and you begin to feel grandiose, entitled to a throne, or Rolls Royces, or a private jet, or sex with anyone you choose. What is happening inside of that person psychologically? How can we understand that? And today, you know, in the world of spirituality, many, many people are having experiences of higher levels of consciousness. We call it non-duality now. And they have an experience, and then they become a teacher. They put it out there online that they're now a teacher. And these people are not prepared. And so I also wanted to educate them about the risks of not knowing their own shadow material, about the risks of committing harmful acts despite their vows, despite their good intentions, and even despite their higher consciousness. And so that's a little bit more complex response to why I wanted to transmit this information, this understanding. Yeah. You even wrote about how years ago, when you were a meditation teacher, you actually believed that meditation was the solution to every problem. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in a kind of wholesale belief that one's teacher or one's spiritual practice is the solution is the Holy Grail and will solve everything. And could you talk about that? Yeah. So 
I started Transcendental Meditation at age 19 and got kind of swept into that community for about a decade. And there was some great beauty in it. It taught me how to quiet my mind and be still. A lot of my anger dissipated. I felt purpose and mission. There was great beauty in the teachings. I studied the Vedas from India and found precious community there. But slowly, the teacher and the community became more and more rigid. And people began to lie in order to get new practices. There were rumors that the teacher who claimed to be celibate was having sex, even while he was telling his students it would be better to be celibate. And so there was a whole series of sort of hypocritical actions, behaviors, and uncomfortable feelings that started arising in me. And so I left in 1979. I left the TM world and I lost all of my friends because when you leave a community, often people don't want to look. People are in denial. They don't want to look at these difficulties themselves. And so your departure makes them uncomfortable. And so I lost all my friends and I came back to Los Angeles very alone and isolated, no career, and disoriented. But my life unfolded from there in very beautiful ways. You know, today I have 74 years of life experience. And when I look back at my 20s and 30s and how things unfolded, I can see how right it was. It was right to learn meditation and it was right to leave that community in the context of my full life story. And so we can't see that while we're in it. And I want to add for some people, it's not necessary to leave. You know, that's not the answer for everyone. I'm not saying that there is a right way to do this for everyone. So for some people, the separation from a teacher is needed. And for others, they can speak up. They can become whistleblowers. They can potentially help to foster change in the community. And so I have examples of those stories, like Kripalu Yoga Community in New York. The teacher was found to be having sex with students. I think he was married. I don't remember if he was celibate or married. But when all of this came out, they began to bring in therapists and consultants, and they revamped the whole community, and the teacher was willing to learn. And so there are different ways to work this process. There are different ways to introduce the shadow into the spiritual community and to process it and perhaps really change the systemic causes of what's happening. That also happened at Zen Center LA, where the 100-year-old Roshi was seducing female students, and the whole thing blew up. And then a female Roshi stepped in and everything was redesigned from the bottom up. In fact, she introduced shadow work. She trained people in communication. She kind of leveled the hierarchy. And so it's not necessary in every situation to leave. But if those options for transformation are not possible and someone is being seriously abused, like sexually assaulted, or emotionally shamed, 
or threatened, and there's no option for speaking up and getting help, you know, then it might be necessary to separate from the teacher. And so there are many examples of that, of communities that entrench the denial and refuse to change, you know, where the teacher refused to do self-reflection and just propped himself back up again. So in many Tibetan Buddhist communities, that's how it unfolded. You know, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche's community has had three generations of abusive teachers now. The Dalai Lama has known about this and has not done anything to make change in these communities, which was very disheartening to find out. So each one is a unique case. And so I'm not prescribing a solution. The second part of the book is about what I call spiritual shadow work. And so it's for individuals who have suffered with some kind of religious or spiritual betrayal and trauma and really want to do inner work. And so that's available to them now from this book. So the spiritual evolutionary journey is is a lot more complex than I think most people even begin to understand or realize. And the issue of doing shadow work or psycho-spiritual work is really critical. I mean, I learned that at an early age, the spiritual community that I got involved with, we did a lot of psycho-spiritual work in it. I was a bit young to really um, be able to fully appreciate all of that and have literally spent my entire life integrating that work and continuing that work. So in most religious and spiritual traditions, they often pit light against dark as right against wrong. And that especially gets projected into the realms of power and sexuality. And part of the title of your book is the dance between light and darkness on the spiritual path. So there's a lot of complex dynamics in there that are that are really difficult for, for most of us to wrap our, our little minds around. Yes. The dance of darkness and light in our search for awakening is the subtitle. And that refers to this idea that you're articulating, which is that most of us enter the path thinking that once we find the right teacher and practice, everything will be easy and filled with light and joy or bliss. And it usually doesn't turn out that way. For most people, there are obstacles, there are ordeals, you know, there is suffering as part of life. And what happens is then we feel that we're off the path. But what I'm suggesting is that meeting the shadow is right on the path. It's not a detour. It's a part of the journey. And it may look like we meet a part of ourselves. That's an inner obstacle. We may meet a part of our own shadow that is stuck at an early stage of development and recreating destructive self-sabotaging patterns. We may meet a part of a shadow in a teacher who has, let's say, authoritarian tendencies or narcissistic needs. And so, you know, he or she controls people. And so if the teacher is feeding on the devotion of the students, he can't allow them to separate and individuate. He can't allow them to question or doubt because that risks his own needs. And so we are meeting 
the shadow of that teacher or she is meeting it in herself. And then, you know, groups often have their own shadows. There are family shadows, community shadows, national shadows. So in every group, there are qualities that are stuffed into the unconscious that people don't want to see. If you think about the well-known community in Oregon with Rajneesh or Osho, all of the secrets and lies that were going on around violence and theft and guns and his drug abuse. And so there are shadows in communities. Also, you know, the community often sends messages about doubt or leaving the community that are really coercive. Like if you leave, you're going to go to hell or your family's going to have bad karma for many lifetimes. And so those group messages are abusive because they're coming from the place not of supporting the evolution of that person, but of supporting the maintenance of the community and sacrificing individual well-being. And so we meet these different kinds of shadows on the path. And for most of us, it's inevitable. And my point is that We need tools to be able to deal with this, to understand it, to understand ourselves and others, why this is happening. And I really haven't seen much teaching about this, much education, much writing about it. And so I wanted to kind of step into that gap and offer my understanding of depth psychology and the shadow to people who are struggling with this. And you've interviewed or spoken with many people who have had these abusive relationships with spiritual teachers. Perhaps some of them have have actually been your clients. Could you give us some examples? Yes. A woman came to me who was part of an ayahuasca community where the leader, she was having beautiful experiences doing ayahuasca, but the leader had sexually assaulted her. And he was very demanding, and he was controlling the women. And he was also really forcing everyone to do ayahuasca every week. That was part of their commitment, which is a lot of plant medicine. I mean, that is just a lot. And so she didn't know how to get out. She thought she was in love with him. She thought she would marry him. He had made her feel special and keep secrets about him. And so she was trapped in this kind of double bind around wanting to be with him and wanting to get away, wanting to be a part of the group and wanting to separate and have her own life. And that moment, when we wake up to that moment in relation to spiritual community, it's very painful. You know, our choices around that can come and go over a long period of time. And it's painful to hold both of those desires, the desire to be a part of something and the desire to be an individual and think for yourself and feel for yourself. So that was one example. I had a Hatha yoga student come to see me who was a student of Bikram, hot yoga. And he was sexually assaulting women all over the place. (laughs) It was just crazy. He ended up being 
arrested and fled the country. I think he's teaching in Mexico now. But, you know, his hot yoga was huge around the country. And this woman had been sexually assaulted by him, didn't know, you know, what to do about it. She had post-traumatic stress. She wanted to continue to be a yogi, but she didn't know, you know, how to do it in the context of that trauma. So this can happen in any situation where we're drawn to a charismatic teacher and he or she does not have shadow awareness, does not have psychological development or moral development. And so if their spiritual development is advanced, but their moral development is not, it's really lacking, then they can act out in very harsh ways. And some of this is cultural. You know, there was a Tibetan teacher named Kali Rinpoche, who was a very well-known Tibetan Buddhist teacher. You mean the old man? The old man. And Mm -hmm. when he died, they named a young man in Tibet to be the next Kali Rinpoche. And that young man, who I think is in his 30s by now, has spoken about how many boys are molested in the Buddhist monasteries in Tibet and Nepal. And so they come here and first of all, they're carrying their own trauma and they don't have any psychological understanding of that. And they don't have any peer support, anyone they can talk to. And, you know, they're supposed to be celibate, monastic, and they come to Western culture where the women are, you know, half-dressed and oozing sensuality. And so there is a huge culture clash that goes on. And the other thing is that some of them in the Eastern cultures come from lineages that carry tremendous reverence in the population. And so they're told all their lives that they're special, you know, that they're royalty, basically, spiritual royalty. And so they're carrying that here as well. So there's a lot of complexity to this. It's not a simple, like you said, good and bad, like so many religious teachings teach about, you know, Jesus versus Satan. So that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying this is very complex and nuanced. And there are women who are seduced by their teachers who like it, who feel special, who marry their teachers. Now, we don't know what the power dynamic is in those marriages, right? But there are other women who are extremely traumatized by that, and actually men as well, who are really traumatized. So there are a number of stories of teachers, of male teachers who seduce men, male students. So power, sex, and money are the three main ways that the shadow emerges in this situation. And power shadow can be very covert. You know, it can be a gesture or a look of contempt. It can be very overt and punitive. There's a lot of shaming and verbal abuse in these communities. And the same with sexual shadow. It can be covert, like, you know, just a passing touch. Or it can be very overt in situations of rape and assault. And the response can have nuance to it, as I was saying. And the same with money. You know, people start out tithing 
Many students are doing seva or service for no money or a small stipend while the teacher is getting very wealthy and ostentatious. And I heard of a case yesterday where the teacher was demanding that this student turn over his inheritance to him. And if he didn't give him his inheritance, which was a lot of money, he wouldn't be his teacher anymore. And so these kinds of situations are traumatic and people often have no outlet. You know, they may find a therapist or they may go to the police in some cases. Many of the cases where the police have been called have not gone all the way to trial and jail. You know, you may have heard of the case with Nixium and Keith Raniere. That was a cult that was recently in the headlines that actually went all the way. He is in prison now. Several of his leaders are in prison. But it's rare for that to happen. talking with Connie Swig. She's the author of this book we've been talking about, Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. While I was preparing for this, I thought of the many people who, who look upon religion and, and spirituality very cynically and see all of this as a kind of carnival of charlatans and fools. So could you talk about the holy longing that drives so many people to this kind of spiritual seeking and that also tends to make them vulnerable to whatever they encounter on, on the spiritual path? That's such a good question. You know, if you don't feel that restless yearning for more, if you're not aware of that longing for awakening or higher consciousness, then you observe all of this and it looks like craziness, right? Why would people subject themselves to this? And there's this detached observer stance that looks at it as, as you said, like a carnival. But for people who are connected to a deep internal longing, I use the term holy longing from a poem by Goethe. For people who feel that yearning to go beyond ego, to cultivate their Buddha nature or their Christ nature or their higher self or non-duality, for those people... There's a genuine purpose to that yearning. And the purpose is to guide us to find practices, and in some cases, teachers, who can give us the tools we need for the evolution of consciousness. So from my point of view, the holy longing is a guide. But what happens is it can also go awry 
when we're guided to abusive teachers. You know, there was a Jungian analyst named Marion Woodman who used to write about this in the context of food. She said that we can project the divine onto a muffin, and that muffin carries all the light and possibility of salvation. This part of us thinks that if we eat and digest that muffin, we will be satisfied, we will be satiated, we will be fulfilled. And I thought that was a beautiful metaphor. But what happens if we keep on eating those muffins and we develop a food addiction and we gain weight and we lose control over our eating? So it's a it's an analogy in the spiritual arena. If we project the solution, like you said, the answer or the light, the spiritual essence onto a human being who's all too human, and unself-aware, could even be a sociopath. I mean, when I wrote all the anecdotes in chapter five, I became convinced that some of them are sociopaths, not just narcissists. And so then what happens to our holy longing? Because we're in that relationship and we're invested in it and we don't want anything to disrupt it. And yet we start to see red flags. We start to see other people in the community maybe struggling with something, keeping secrets, suffering in some way. I mean, there are suicides in some of these communities, you know, not only depression. And so I think there are these, the light side of the holy longing and the dark side of it. And If we begin to learn how to cultivate shadow awareness and wake up to the blind spots in ourselves and in our teachers, we can have these spiritual relationships, but they'll be different. We can find our practices, but we'll do them differently. And even our communities, but we'll be in them differently with shadow awareness. And so I'm suggesting that it's not a black and white. I'm not an anti-cult person. That's not where I'm coming from, which is all about, you know, get the people out and back into the conventional world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm suggesting that we need a different kind of awareness, an awareness of the shadow in order to really expand our spiritual lives, in order to expand the possibilities of discipleship, of community. And, you know, that splitting of dark and light in most traditions is really unfortunate to me. But most traditions that were founded thousands of years ago before we had the gifts of psychology. So that's kind of how I understand that. And there's a wonderful line that I just love It sounds so cheeky, but it's so apt. It's when the student is ready, the guru disappears. (laughs) I just love that line. And and it's like growing past our spiritual teachers and, and reclaiming our own power and our own inner direct sense of spirituality is an essential part of the evolutionary spiritual journey. And It's that aspect of individuation, which is something that our culture 
lacks any kind of right of meaningful individuation. We either tend to rebel violently or we just completely conform. So it's such a great turn on, on the old phrase of when the student is ready, the guru appears. You know, when I was in my training to become a therapist, we learned about transference, which is the projection by the client onto the therapist, either as a parent or as something larger than that. And Carl Jung spoke about when he learned that a client was really projecting God onto him and that he was carrying that for her and that he had to figure out how to hand it back, how to return that divine quality to his patient. And so in clinical training, we learn how to return the transference to the patient at the right moment and allow the patient to carry it for him or herself. Our spiritual teachers don't do that, or let's say they rarely do that. They're not trained to do that. They may say the words God, guru, and self are the same, but they don't typically, usually, return that projection to their students. I'm thinking of several people who are contemporary teachers now who tell the stories of their gurus saying to them, okay, you're ready, go out and teach. So that's a version of that without the psychology. But in most cases, people get stuck in the student position, the dependent subordinate position, and the clergy or teachers don't empower them to move on, to carry their own light, their own spiritual essence and move on. And so that quote sort of reversed, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. When the student's ready, the guru disappears. That's that moment when as a spiritual teacher or as a therapist, we want to disappear in the sense of giving back the projection to the believer and allowing that person to rise from the subordinate position to stand on her own or his own in her own power, in her own radiance, in her own belief in herself. And I wish that happened more in the spiritual world, you know. But as I was saying, teachers get caught in that role of superiority, you know, and the adoration and the control. And they don't want to let it go. Mm -hmm. And talk about disillusionment and loss of faith as a natural part of the spiritual journey and, and a kind of necessary betrayal of our kind of spiritual naivete. Well, if we come into onto the path, really thinking that it's going to be all sweetness and light, disillusionment is pretty inevitable. But again, nobody guides us to work it through. There's nobody to help us understand it and come out the other side. And so it is, in a way, a walk through the shadow. It's like an initiation into the shadow for some people. And that initiation can lead to much broader, deeper awareness and more spiritual maturity. I mean, that's the promise of coming out the other side of it. 
but many people get stuck in the loss of faith. And I'm not so much talking about beliefs, the content of beliefs, because the book is very ecumenical. The patterns of abuse and the consequences are all the same in every denomination. So this is not about what to believe or not to believe. This is about the psychology of what's happening. And so, you know, if you lose faith, where do you go? I mean, some people, I had a friend who lost faith with Muktananda. She was devastated about the scandals and she went to the Catholic church and she was totally surprised by herself, but that's where she went. So, you know, some people can change gears and find something valuable somewhere else. Many people get stuck in the emptiness of disillusionment, and it can be very disorienting and depressing. And that's why I wanted to offer spiritual shadow work, to see if people can kind of examine themselves and rekindle the holy longing and the inspiration that led them down the path. There's something in the book that you write about that sounded fascinating to me that I had never heard about. And you said that there was back in the first few centuries after the Buddha died, there was a community that was using a kind of confessional ceremony amongst the monks, which sounds very much like this kind of shadow work that you're alluding to, or could be. It does sound like that. You know, I don't remember the exact anecdote about it, but yes, there was a process of self-examination that has gotten lost in the tradition. And, you know, as we see today, there's a group of scholars called the Religion and Sexual Abuse Project. And some of their focus is on Catholicism, but most of it is on Buddhism. And it's pretty upsetting what's going on now in all of the different Buddhist communities in terms of the shadow. But there are these efforts now to study it and understand it and transform it, you know, reorganize around it. So that is beginning to happen, not in the same form that it did centuries ago, but, you know, in the context of the current climate. And sometimes these efforts are not well-received. Like you told the story of Dr. Joy at Findhorn. Uh-huh. Well, Brew Joy was a physician who became a healer, probably most well-known in the 1980s. And he wrote a book called Avalanche, which is one of the few books that I found by a spiritual teacher that is confessional that is exploring his own shadow issues, his own psyche, and why eventually he stepped down from his role of being a healer. But on a trip to Findhorn, where he was teaching, he tried to be self-disclosing and step off the pedestal and return the projection to people, and they just didn't want it. They wanted him to hold that position for them. And, you know, it's rare that a teacher is trying to be so transparent. There's another story from Yvonne Rand, who was a Zen Roshi, talking about how when she would speak to her students in her street clothes, she would have one experience of their projection. And then she would put on her black robe 
as a teacher and she would have a completely different experience. And so, you know, there are some teachers who are aware enough, self-aware enough how this happens and can play with it a little bit or even take the step of, you know, returning it to the student. But not very much, not, not that I've found very much. Well, it sounds like a tricky job to return something like that to the student because by definition, the student is the student and may not be, let's say, spiritually and psychologically sophisticated enough to understand that dynamic. Well, that's why the timing is everything for this. I mean, when I was practicing psychotherapy, I could feel people needed the projection on me sometimes for years. So I wouldn't mess with it in that case. But I had to wait until the moment was right to be human, to humanize myself in some way. Maybe I just said something about myself for the first time. Or maybe I spoke about what I felt carrying that projection. Or I checked in with them to see what they were feeling when they were projecting on me. But the timing of it would have to be right, especially in the beginning of a relationship. You don't want to do that. So, you know, I'm not making this right or wrong. I'm suggesting that many people need spiritual guides at times in their lives. It's really important to be discriminating about your choices, to have shadow awareness as you kind of search for the right teacher, to be willing to look at the red flags and not be in denial about them, and be willing to leave if the situation is untenable. And that's, it's a hard ask that I'm making here. It's a hard request for most people. But I think if we want spiritual maturity, if we want to move out of that spiritual naivete, where we're just blindly giving ourselves away, blindly surrendering, and, you know, then becoming subject of coercion. If we want to move out of that into a more mature spirituality, then we need to take these steps. It's interesting how the desire, the sincere desire to do shadow work is very similar to what you call the holy longing. Well, because it's a yearning for consciousness. It's a yearning for evolution that's built into us. I really believe, you know, the evolutionary drive is built into every human being. Anyone who has a human nervous system wants to become more developed. And whether that desire is conscious or not, I believe it's a part of us. And so for some people, that takes the form of insight, cognitive awareness, education. For other people, it takes the form of spirituality and, you know, non-conceptual awareness. For other people, the holy longing can show up as a longing for romantic intimacy and losing yourself in another person. It can take these different forms. But yes, it's the same drive for the evolution of consciousness. Getting back to romantic longing, it occurred to me to ask you, because for some people, it may be really difficult to distinguish or to understand the difference between the kind of deeply sincere romantic longing that, you know, when we deeply fall in love with another person, 
how that differs from, let's say, Rumi's relationship with Shams. So I wrote a novel about Rumi called A Moth to the Flame and his life story and the evolution of his consciousness as he went through that relationship with Shams. And his holy longing was driving his whole life and it was expressed in the poetry. And you can see it, you can feel it, you can hear it in the verses. And then when Shams shows up, it becomes attached to him, the longing for him, as the symbol of the divine human. In Sufism, you know, the perfect man, they call it. So when we fall in love, we may project that divinity onto the object of our desire. We may want that person who we attach to to be a perfect human, to be our ideal mother or father, to be our ideal enlightened one, our ideal partner. And a lot of that is unconscious. And often when people meet and they match like that, there's a part of their shadows in in each of them that's matching. You know, that piece of shadow in the man matches that piece of shadow in the woman, or if it's a gay couple, same sex, but the shadows dance together unknowingly, right, under, beneath the threshold of awareness. And then what happens? They have a good few months or even a good year, and then the conflict begins because the shadow begins to erupt. And sometimes they're repeating fights, same thing over and over again, and they can't figure out why this is happening because they found the perfect person for them, right? So, you know, this is more the topic of Romancing the Shadow. That book is about relationships. And my kind of vision for shadow work in relationship, I call the shadow marriage, where you get to the point where you know your own shadow material, you know your partner's shadow material, and you can actually make a commitment to that rather than just to the persona just the person who's acting the way you want them to. You actually can go deeper into the unconscious and make a bond about, okay, this is really difficult for me, but I'm going to, you know, let's call it the critic. I'm going to work with my husband's critic, or I'm going to, you know, work with my wife's abandoner, and we're going to have a conscious relationship around these shadow parts. And that's what I call a shadow marriage. But you can't do that with a spiritual teacher, really. You know, the spiritual teacher is by nature not egalitarian. There's a power difference in those relationships, no matter what tradition or lineage it is, which is why I become skeptical about people marrying their spiritual teachers, you know. But it's a different dynamic, Tonio, than really what what I'm talking about in this book. But you can do that for yourself with a spiritual teacher. You can look at your own shadow material and see what are you giving away to that person? Are you projecting your own compassion onto her and letting her carry it so that you don't carry it for yourself and you're judgmental and critical and the teacher's compassionate? Or are you projecting unconditional love 
because you didn't have that as a child and the teacher is carrying that and you're not carrying that for yourself. So whatever the issues are, are you projecting certainty? This person knows everything and I don't. Or are you projecting bliss? This person has, you know, blissful states and I don't. And I can only get it through my affinity with that person. Then you become locked in to that dynamic because you believe it depends. Your well-being depends on that other person. And if he or she mistreats you, then what? Then what happens? So that power difference is very distinct from romantic relationships where hopefully people are trying to be equals. Of course, there are some marriages where that's not the case. But that's a big difference. Mm -hmm. So considering that the shadow aspects of ourselves largely exist in our blind spots, how can we, what can we do to, to help us recognize them? So I generally taught my method in romancing the shadow. I, I can't go through it now. Meeting the shadow on the spiritual path is a variation. It's not the same method because it's more just dealing with the projection onto a teacher. It's more about that relationship and that dynamic. And so the last part of the book is about that method, how to reclaim the projections in order to live a more mature spirituality. And, you know, it's a complicated thing to learn how to orient to the unconscious and catch your shadow material and form it into what I call shadow characters, which are parts of the unconscious that you can begin to have a conscious relationship with. So that's the general idea. For people who are not familiar with that or aren't familiar enough with it, could you elaborate at all on that? Um, I don't want to go into the method. It's way too complicated now. Mm -hmm. But it's in my books, and people can go to connieswag.com and find my workshops. I'm actually teaching a four-part course online on shadow work right now. And if they just want the method without the spiritual context, they can read Romancing the Shadow. That's the best place to go for that. Thank you so much for all of this and being on the show. Antonio, I'm so grateful to you. You were so prepared and articulate about this, which is not always my experience. So it was a wonderful conversation for me. I really enjoyed it. Much appreciated. And your book that came out last year sounds fascinating to me as well. Maybe we can get together and have a chat about that at some point. That would be lovely. Let me actually put out an invitation to our listeners. If you want to read Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, I'm going to be forming support groups that I'm calling Spiritual Shadow Work Groups, and they'll be free, online, leaderless groups to go through the book together and actually do the work in community. And I'll organize you by time zone. So if that's of interest to you, you can shoot me an email, ConnieZweig at gmail.com. And please put spiritual shadow work in the subject line 
please don't send me a long story because I get too much email, but give me your time zone and I will connect you with other people and you can do this work together. And you spell your last name Z-W-E-I-G. Yes, that's (laughs) right. Connie Zweig at gmail.com. Well, again, thank you so much. Grateful to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Connie Swag. She's a retired therapist and co-author of Meeting the Shadow and Romancing the Shadow. In 2022, her award-winning book, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, won numerous awards and extends her work on the shadow into exploring aging as a spiritual practice. Her new book that we've been talking about is Meeting the Shadow on the Spiritual Path, The Dance of Darkness and Light in Our Search for Awakening. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio.
There's a vacuum in my head Better not get out of bed Only room for distraction Thousand started interactions Yes, I'd love to take the risk If it's safe to take it I love the choice When you're the one that makes it I want sugar I want sugar all the time Shortcuts and quick fixes Only water heights I want sugar I want sugar all the time I want sugar is too far come on give me headlines I need some pictures to swipe there's a vacuum in my head my appetite is never fed I don't see it if I just close my eyes I want sugar, I want sugar all the time Shortcuts of quick fixes, only water highs I want grapes with no stones, have it ready
as old as gravity. Is war as old as gravity? Is war as old as gravity? Is war as old as gravity? If I love peace, if do I, I have to peace, love trees? Do I have to 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 love trees? I love peace. Do I have to love trees? Do I have to love trees? Do I love peace? Do I love peace? If I love trees, do I have to love trees?
on our new sound boo. Open your mind. Let us begin our quest to find the new sound. the end that's not it's the beginning of something interesting listen that's the end of that saga what are you icelandic
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Hey!